It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 200. I'm coming to you, well, it's not live, because you know how the time-space continuum thing works, but uh, I am outside of a coffee shop in Dubai. Just wanted to get this podcast out to you guys. This is episode 200. This is like a landmark. I know we've actually published more than 200 podcasts, but this is numerically 200, which has got to mean something. Uh, in any case, hopefully you guys enjoy this podcast. This is part one of our Q&A session from our most recent seminar in Los Angeles, 2022. If you want to attend one of our live in-person seminars, we have those linked in the description below, including our all-new pain and rehab seminar, which is in Miami in January of 2023. In any case, hopefully you guys enjoy this podcast and catch you next time right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you. Uh, thank you guys all for coming to the seminar. Uh, this first one we've done in what? A few months, I guess. It's been a while. Since Philadelphia. It had to be April or something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're happy to be back. Happy that you guys all uh, chose to spend your weekend with us. We understand if you have to leave, it's getting, well, it's been dark for hours, so it's probably midnight by now. Uh, if your question was not answered here, it's Austin's fault, and you can send a personal written complaint to Austin's actual home. His address is... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sorry, you can ask us the question on our Facebook group. Just search Barbell Medicine on Facebook or our forum. Uh, you go to bar- our website. There's a forum tab. We're pretty active on both those things. Otherwise, I don't know what to tell you. Okay. Uh, our first question. When people lose body weight quickly, does that affect the appetite-satiety relationship more slowly compared to when you lose weight at a slower rate, more sustained? I feel like... This question is weirded, worded weirdly. Yeah, I think you probably figure what they're getting at. Basically, differences between losing weight really quickly versus slower or more sustainably. With respect to? Outcomes. Yeah, the appetite. Weight. Yeah. So I wouldn't, first thing, I wouldn't necessarily say that losing weight more slowly is more sustainable as far as like a long-term rate, like rate of recidivism or weight regain. It doesn't seem to be the case, especially if we rely on data from weight loss medications. And as far as... I know with the investigation into how people rate their appetite and their satiety, doesn't seem to be a marked difference when people lose weight relatively quickly. The biggest factor here has to do with how they lost the weight. So with weight loss medications, for example, people report being very satiated, low appetite, but if people are on very restrictive, very low energy uh, density diets, uh, they do tend to be quite hungry on average, but that is not restricted to just short-term periods, if they did that for a longer period of time, that they still report that same finding. So I think, yeah, I think that's how I would answer this question. Yeah, I, the, the, the short answer that I would give is I would not have any concerns about somebody losing weight more quickly after dietary interventions if that is feasible for them. And I would certainly not deliberately slow somebody's weight loss down with the thinking that that is going to make it more sustainable or easier for them to keep it off. I would, pre- I would prefer, if it is possible for them, to get it off quickly in a way that they feel like they can you know, sustain the strategies themselves, mm. um, then I have no concerns over it coming off faster. But as you said, that the, basically, I think of it less in terms of the rate of weight loss being the thing that predicts that outcome, and more so, like, did, did this diet require you to diet at RPE 10 all the time? Was it yeah. the hardest thing to, in, in the world to just get through a day without you know, thinking about food nonstop and having to actively, consciously resist it uh, all around you? Yeah, that's not gonna work very well or last very long, right? Regardless of how quickly or slowly the weight comes off. So the speed of weight change is not the variable that I'm concerned about compared with basically how difficult 
um, or not the day-to-day -day work is. And then if even just basic interventions result in really high effort and, and difficult to sustain strategies, that's one of those situations where the remarkable effect of these medications can just effectively turn all of that off, uh, make the thoughts and about food and cravings of food and all of that stuff just yeah. vanishes. That's been my experience with my patients so far. You know, it's interesting though, this, this is a pretty like sustained, I don't want to call it like a old wives tale or like urban legend, right? But people will say, no, if you lose it slower, it's more sustainable or whatever. And I think there's, I think there's probably something to that in, in, insofar as if you're markedly changing your behaviors and your skill set with respect to like food purchasing, food preparation, uh, battling with different social sort of things you're gonna, that are going to come up, like a party, a wedding, you know, night out, something like that. Uh, that may take a significant amount of time to like put all those pieces together, and so it takes a longer period of time for that person to lose weight, right? And then, but they're armed with this, this skill set that you probably can't develop overnight. Yeah. So more uh, of a reverse causation sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So I, you know, because people do report that quite often. And the only thing I'll say in addition to this is that. Uh, in like untrained individuals, uh, when we look at like muscle mass loss with rate of weight loss, it doesn't seem to be that much different uh, if people lose weight quickly or slowly, uh, especially if they're not uh, like bed bound or something like that. Uh, but for highly trained individuals, when they lose weight very, very quickly, um, they do tend to lose a significant amount uh, more of lean body mass. Uh, and I will make the caveat, this is not from like water cuts as far as those have been studied. Because water technically is part of the lean body mass component, but when you look at uh, things that don't have to do with manipulating water intake, yeah, you tend to see that. So from somebody who's like a well-trained individual, if they're like, I don't wanna lose any muscle mass, I'd probably do it more slowly. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think we've sufficiently answered this question. Yeah. Hold on a Very small. Uh... As long as I look good. Yeah, too many pixels, I know. At some point, it's gonna be like in your pores. Okay, cool. Uh, all right, question number two. Dr. Baraki, how important is the triglycerides level on the lipid panel? All right, yeah. so what is a triglyceride? It is a chemical molecule that has a couple fatty acids attached. So it has three fatty acids and a little backbone, that's technically why it's triglyceride on there. And mm -hmm. it's something that we do measure on the standard blood cholesterol panel. Um, I did not put a ton of emphasis on it because it is typically not the first uh, and the most important thing that I'll look at unless the levels are absolutely sky high. And by that, I mean like greater than 500 or so will immediately get my attention. A typical normal cutoff on most labs is around 150 and that's in milligrams per deciliter units on our tests. I really like if I have patients whose levels are less than 100, that is typically, you know, uh, indicative of, of good things happening. Um, in the 100 to 150 range, I don't really sweat it too much. And then as it gets higher and higher, that typically is something that we see in situations where patients have more insulin resistance. That's that spectrum, the end stage of which is, is diabetes. And so see that commonly. And then in situations where there's a lot of alcohol use can be another situation where those can get high. Um, but if those levels, if I look at a lipid panel and those levels are over 500, it's like, okay, that's my primary focus right now in the short term because I want to get those under control because it can cause certain complications. If it's more in that intermediate range, then it's not necessarily my immediate focus. So for you guys, I had a chat with one of our attendees about their basic blood lipid panel. The first um, thing I look at in general, if that's not the most compelling finding, 
um, is going to be to take the total cholesterol number, subtract the HDL cholesterol number. That gives you something called non-HDL cholesterol, and that's a good enough estimate of all the potential particles that we want to reduce to get down in order to re reduce people's heart disease risk. So total minus HDL, sometimes that's provided on the panel, sometimes you can just do the math yourself, basic subtraction. And for people who are uh, not, who don't have a history of, you know, heart disease issues, when that number is less than about 130 milligrams per deciliter or so, I feel okay about where they're at. The higher it is from there, the more I'd like to get it down. And then for people who have heart disease history, who've had a heart attack before or something like that, that number I'm trying to get down as low as possible. And in general, with m most situations, even when triglycerides are elevated, um, I'm still using um, non-triglyceride specific treatments and medications to get that down. So addressing the insulin resistance piece, addressing alcohol to the extent I can, weight loss can all help with these things. And then still, if I need to use medications, I'm still using the same ones I would in other situations like statins and azetamibe and things like that. There are some specific medicines that are used to lower triglycerides, but the evidence for those is not nearly as good as the other ones. So I'm almost never singularly focused on the triglycerides and more so on the other stuff, unless the triglycerides are completely through the roof, like over 500, over 1,000 for sure. Yep. I think the highest I've seen was like 4,500 or so, which is yep. pretty insane. Um, so yeah, that's the short story on those. Uh, this may surprise you, but I have nothing to add. Okay, very good. <laughs> Question number three. Regarding back pain being so prevalent globally, I'm wondering if it is attributable to just a lack of activity, overuse due to lifestyle or occupation, general lack of musculature and supporting background activity, or how do you guys think about it, and is this something we can help people with in terms of prevention or reducing the incidence of in the population or just those around us? That's a long question. Yeah. That's a lot of commas. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like. 21 Savage is a lot and, of and I think this question helps us hammer home a few important points uh, from the, the pain discussion because the, the way this question is framed seems to continue to look for a singular explanation for back pain, right? And hopefully if there's anything you took away, it's that it's real complicated. It's very multifactorial. It's every individual person's experience of back pain is gonna be related to a whole bunch of different variables that are unique to them, their situation, their culture, their surroundings, their occupation, their et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I do not typically attribute back pain, incidence, prevalence, disability, things like that, to things like just a lack of activity or overuse or lack of musculature or any of those things. Rather, talking to the person, learning about their experience, assessing all of those different biological, psychosocial variables that we talked about, figuring out, is this person somebody who needs more immediate change in what I'm doing for them because they have some real badness going on, like they need surgery, they have cancer in their spine, they have an infection in their spine, obviously very, 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 very rare situations, um, in, in, you know, broadly speaking. Or is this one of those that does not require one of those immediate urgent kind of referrals for those kind of things? And we have all these other strategies that we can work on to manage it. The other piece of this question relates to prevention and prevention of low back pain is an area of a ton of research and unfortunately really little promising <laughs> results. Um, from the 2018 Lancet series on low back pain, they have a specific article on prevention of low back pain, a section of it dedicated to that, where they review evidence on things. For example, like does wearing belts reduce the incidence of prevent back pain? No. Shoe inserts, do those prevent low back pain? Nope. No, et cetera, et cetera. The things that they found that had some evidence, uh, although it's not 
incredible, incredibly high quality evidence, nor is it incredibly massive effect sizes, was education and exercise, which sounds like a cliche coming from us um, when we talk about this topic, but those were the only things that they identified that had even some evidence for the prevention, quote unquote, or reducing the risk of people developing back pain. And so, um, you know, I'm not going to be, uh, I'm, I'm not super hopeful that we are going to find ways to prevent the incidence of back pain, because I think that when I say incidence, I mean people experiencing new onset acute back pain. I think that's just part of the human condition, like getting a cold. I think it's going to happen. I think more so when it happens, how we manage it in that situation, the messages that people get from their clinicians, healthcare professionals, from society, what should I do in a situation where I am experiencing back pain? I think that's where we have more of an opportunity to kind of move the needle as far as how disabling is this? How long does this last? How long does this impact people? And how likely are they to get better, return back to life, work, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of the messages that you guys heard in the lecture today um, revolved more around that. How do we talk about this? How do we communicate it around it? What should the recommendations be for people who are experiencing it? Rather than if you move this one particular way, you won't get back pain. Or if you Mushroom use cloud. this belt, or if you do this particular magic exercise, or if you do bird dogs, or whatever the case is, you won't experience back pain. Because that ain't it. It's not gonna work that way, so. I could imagine some sort of like very well-funded, you know, public education campaign where it's like, exercise your back and it's not that the exercise itself is necessarily going to reduce the incidence or whatever but you could pair a bunch of education mm -hmm. and, and verbiage and phrasing with it to sort of let give people like a reader's digest version of your pain lecture and that might move the needle as far as like the disability associated yep. and sort of attitude surrounding like having low back pain. That's I think like the most promising area. Australia is doing better at that. Yeah. Um, sort of the research side and translating that into clinical recommendations and things like that. Yeah. Um, the, for the clinicians in the audience, um, there was something that was just published in September of 2022 called the Low Back Pain Clinical Care Standard. And that came out from Australia and it is a fantastic document. I was recently on a podcast interview regarding low back pain for primary care doctors, and I referenced the hell out of this document. Yeah. Would recommend anybody who sees patients, deals with patients, or even coaches, the, the way the document is written is not super fancy advanced clinical language, but September 22, um, low back pain clinical care standard from Australia is top-notch stuff, would recommend. We'll link it in the description. There you go. Australians are on top of it. Are you aware of their slip, slop, slap campaign? We, we both learned about that in medical school. That's right, <laughs> all right. Oh boy. What would you say are the criticisms or weaknesses of barbell medicine from outsiders? <laughs> Thank you, whoever asked this question. Do you want to start? I selected this for you. Oh, from hey, hey thanks. <laughs> I appreciate you. Um, well, I think, I think outside of like any sort of personal differences, if people are like, I don't like Jordan, or if on the rare occasion somebody doesn't like Austin, you know, outside, save, save for that because that's gonna be a thing. Uh, I think the biggest criticism would be that they just disagree with our interpretation of the evidence, to which we would say, well, great, where's the, the opposing evidence and how do you interpret that? And then usually that argument just kind of falls flat. Um, or there's just different belief systems in general and we can't agree that the sky is blue and so it's really difficult to actually have a discussion on the evidence. So that'd be like one area that we'd be criticized on. I think uh, also, uh, it, it, we could be criticized for uh, maybe lack of diversity amongst our coaching cadre and like who are members of barbell medicine. That's so you could make that argument. But as far as like other actual criticisms of our material and what we put out, 
I mean, in addition to us having extensive training and, and uh, fund of knowledge within the topics that we talk about, um, particularly in a confident manner, we also have a lot of experience here. So people can't be like, you guys don't even lift. And we're like, mm, can't really get us there. Yeah, it's like, lift a little bit. Yeah, and they're like, well, you don't even, you're not even aware of the signs. Like, yeah, kind of, kind of did that too. Um, so yeah, I think mostly it would just be like a personal either disagreement or um, some sort of like diversity kind of kind of thing. I think those would be, or maybe that uh, you know it'd be something minute. Uh, like for for example, like we're not putting out enough information on a particular topic that somebody else wants to know about, and I that's fair too. But there's just not that many of us. Uh, so what do you think the criticisms would be? I think you kind of got it. One that I was thinking first and so a lot of times when there are significant disagreements um, or you know we get questions a lot how do I change this person's mind on something and that can be problematic when the interaction between these two people when the two people involved in the discussion or the disagreement or whatever the case is do not share the same epistemology and epistemology is like the sh a shared um, you know way uh, method of how can we come to a conclusion on this ways of knowing things mm -hmm. and so there are people who basically if you try to cite scientific evidence on something they say no that's trash yeah and so it's like if science. we cannot have a shared basis of how we may even come to an understanding on something they're not gonna agree with us we're probably not gonna agree with them I heard an interview recently between two folks separate from barbell medicine or anything else like that on a, on a nutrition related topic. And one person was trying to cite some of the prospective cohort nutritional you know, research on things. And the other guy's like, no, all nutrition science is trash. And so it's like, okay, that is not gonna ever come to a productive conclusion because they are talking past one another. There's no shared understanding of like, how can we come closer to the truth on yeah. this yeah. or how can we come become less wrong? So if it's like, if you're not operating on the same level on that front, then you're never going to disagree. So I think that to the extent that people, as you said, might disagree with our interpretation of the evidence or something like that, it is probably going to come a fair amount of the time from people who say, I just don't trust the evidence or that evidence is trash or I don't use that to come to my conclusions. I trust my observational experience and I don't care what the research says because I don't mm. trust it or whatever the case is. And it's like, Okay. Yeah. I'm fine with that. Yeah. I'm good. <laughs> uh, I think probably one of the original criticisms we got, uh, particularly when we left Starting Strength, was that we were just trying to overcomplicate things, making everything very, very nuanced and complicated. But I think if you take things away from this seminar, while there is a lot to know for like the fund of knowledge standpoint, what you actually end up doing in practice, whether it be in the medical clinic or in your gym or whatever, it, it really just kind of opens you up saying there are a lot of different options that a lot of different roads that all lead to Rome. You can pick many different exercises. You can pick many different rep schemes. There are many different dietary patterns that fit with the health promoting dietary pattern um, rather than just the one way. And so, uh, yes, it's less restrictive and less simple in that way because you have multiple choices to make, but it's also kind of easier in our, my opinion to do because you catch there, more people and, and there are many yeah. different things to do. Yeah. I don't know. Anything else you think on this? I mean, probably. Somebody in the comments, they're going to let us know. <laughs> oh, no. Here's why you guys Here's suck. Here's why you guys suck. <laughs> yeah. In higher socioeconomic po populations, we tend to see more alternative therapies being sought out and prescribed, along with unsupported narratives to justify these treatments from influential figures of authority. How would you reframe these narratives and guide this patient? Yeah, I wonder who wrote this. <laughs> <I wonder. laughs> He's like, what are you looking at me for? <laughs> Oh man. Oh <laughs> uh, man, that's yeah. It's 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 tough. I 
I don't know that reframing the narrative is probably where I would start. I'd, I'd kind of probably start this with what what are your what do you understand about what we're what you think you're treating? Like what is your understanding of this medical process, this disease process, or this condition that you're treating? And what do you understand about the effect of this medicine? Just trying to get see where their knowledge base is at, fund of knowledge is at, and then kind of go from there rather than doctor explaining. Um, oh yeah, this is actually not based on evidence, et cetera. But rather, if I can see where they're coming from, see what their belief system is and their current sort of uh, knowledge, I can kind of, it's not interjecting as much as it is guiding them from that closer to what we think the truth is now based on current evidence. Doesn't mean at the time they're gonna fully reject, like, yeah, I don't need this particular treatment or this particular test or whatever, but they might, we might come to a more shared understanding of their treatment goals, our goals for them, and how we're trying to achieve that. Because ultimately, we want the patient to be on the optimal health trajectory, also be satisfied with their care, uh, but also maintain our ethical standard you know, to <laughs> do no harm. So how would yeah. you approach this? I mean, complementary alternative medicine, the world is really big, really complex. It rakes in, I don't know what any, I don't have figures on it, but lots and lots and lots of money is, is, is spent on those sorts of therapies. Yep. And many of them uh, are not particularly effective, but they, when, when you talk to people who utilize these things, oftentimes you hear things like, it works for me, or it worked for me. And we talked about this a little bit on, on our most recent podcast, where there was some research on various supplements as it related to like blood cholesterol lowering, and we saw which with each one, there was people took placebo, and there were some who got worse, some who got better, and everything in between, and every supplement, some who got worse, some who got better, and everything in between, just like the placebo. And so I said, you know, I can see how somebody might take one of these things, and if they were the person who their numbers looked better, they'd be like, see, it worked for me, I'm sticking with it. And that's a pretty tough thing to convince somebody otherwise on, right? So this gets back to this whole idea that we've, I feel like I've been talking about everywhere I go recently about changing people's minds on things and uh, how difficult that can be mm -hmm. to do in these kind of conversations. But if somebody's coming to me and wanting to pursue some form of this treatment, my first thing is probably getting a sense of their, their background history of how they got to this conclusion and how they got to me. Yep. Because a fair amount of the time they've had some interaction, some experience with the healthcare system that may have uh, let them down in some way and that led them to go in a different direction. Um, and trying to figure out how that happened because they may be coming in still skeptical of what I'm gonna recommend because of you know, my, my position here. So um, trying to get a sense of where they're coming from and why they think what they think is the first step. And um, at least trying to get them to engage with the things that are most likely to actually help them, even if I'm not able to fully dissuade them from the thing that they're pursuing. So you'll hear this a lot from, you know, sometimes you'll hear interviews of like cancer doctors who are like, what if your patient thinks that they should take this supplement for their cancer? And it's like, well, if they're willing to engage in the cancer treatment that I'm recommending, and I don't have any reason to believe that this supplement that they're taking is screwing with, interfering with, or making what I'm doing worse, Unfold, then yeah. that may not be a battle that's always worth, <laughs> worth fighting with the, with the individual. So kind of a case-by-case -case situation, as most of these things are. But I think getting to know the person, where they're coming from, why they think what they think, and seeing, can I at least get you into engage in things that I'm very confident are gonna help you? And then leaving it to a secondary thing of steering them away from, from other stuff, particularly yeah. if it's like a cash pay situation and they're gonna pay for it themselves, um, which is typically the case as insurance don't tend to cover things that don't work. Um, yeah. Then, then you know, I can only put so much energy into like trying to tell somebody don't do this thing for yourself, even if I may not be the person to prescribe it or recommend it for you. Yeah, if it's harmful, I'd be more actively trying to get them yeah. to stop doing the thing. If it's less harmful, more of like a cost physically, then I'm like, I mean, that's on you. That, that's on you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then 
the other thing, is, a lot of this is like an, the locus of control, right? So if you have this condition that's been either dismissed or otherwise un, what you feel like is undertreated, poorly managed throughout the medical system, your medical experience so far, and then you get to a physician uh, who's willing to prescribe you something or take it seriously or whatever, uh, you feel like, no, I'm in control. Finally got what I'm looking for, even if the supplement or the treatment is not evidence-based, and you know, mostly placebo at that point, but they feel like I'm in, I'm doing this, mm -hmm. I'm in control. And so on the one hand, I love that you're in control, you just got that self-efficacy, I just wish uh, that whatever you're leveraging there has a very, you know, it has no harm or potential risk. So yeah, if you had somebody that was already prescribed on a bunch of stuff that you otherwise wouldn't do because it's not evidence-based and they got transferred to you, how would you, how would you? Would I like aggressively discontinue it? Not immediately. I yeah. might whittle away at it over time. Yeah. <laughs> if, <laughs> if there was a significant risk? Well, yeah, we're going to have that conversation it. pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. Okay. exactly. All right. <laughs> just testing you. Yeah. All right. Uh, question number six. What can we do as rehab professionals to help reduce unnecessary imaging for patients with pain? You know, if you, re if you just take this question as it's written, it's like, I don't know that that's necessarily your role in the healthcare system as far as like ordering imaging or demanding imaging. Um, and if that's what you're doing, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily know that that's the root cause of this unnecessary imaging. Yeah, Rather, but they can help. Certainly, <laughs> certainly. So, so I think this is a t like maybe a, I don't wanna say top down and just in view the medical system and this hierarchical system, but like it starts a lot with physicians ordering unnecessary imaging because they're not aware of clinical practice guidelines and they're just, doing stuff to appease the patient rather than having tough conversations with them about what their pain means, what their likely trajectory is, referring them appropriately. But then sure, at the level of the rehab professional, if the rehab professional is like, you got a strained quadratus lumborum, that's what's causing your low back, your QL, or your tensor fascia lata is weak, or your glutes aren't firing, or something else like that. Leading people to these like singular point causes of their pain experience can, again, further lead them down this road of like, I need to get an MRI or a CT or an X-ray of this to visualize where is the problem, where is the pain generator, and it's like I don't know why we're using that language because that doesn't really not only is inaccurate as far as what's going on, but also potentially harmful in, in getting people to instill this narrative within themselves. I think that one of the things that might lead patients to pursue these kind of things is if they are getting conflicting messaging. Sure because a lot of people, as we discussed, might view an MRI as like, put it on this pedestal of this is, the, this is the answer donut. This is the truth machine. This is gonna resolve all this human crap from all these different people telling me different things. No, that's gonna get resolved if I get this MRI and it's gonna show me exactly what's wrong with me, right? And so there are a couple things. I mean, there are places where you can go direct to a physical therapist without referral through a primary care person. So there, the PT might be the first person to mm -hmm. come across the patient and there they have a very significant role as the person who's receiving the patient for the first time in guiding what direction they're gonna go and being as aware as they can be of all this stuff that we're talking about, being aware of, hey, maybe that clinical care standard document that I just, that I just talked about, knowing all that stuff frontward, backward, upside down would be really good as it impacts your communication with the patient. And then even if you're not the first person to see the patient, even if you're receiving the patient by way of a physician or something like that, the more clear and consistent the messaging is across the entire healthcare system, uh, the better. 
that's a good thing. If they're getting clear and consistent messaging that they don't need this imaging necessarily, that the prognosis is good, that here's what the recommendations are, et cetera, et cetera, then that will tend to boost confidence and trust in the recommendations, right? But the more conflicting information, they're like, one doctor told me it was this, the other told me it was this, the physical therapist told me it was this, of course they're gonna want that. Mm -hmm. That makes, that's a completely rational desire to have if you're getting all sorts of conflicting information from all over the place. So as healthcare professionals, if you're receiving the patient first, Everything we talked about this morning applies. All the guidelines in these, in these documents apply. If you're receiving the patient second via somebody else through referral, being consistent with the messaging is helpful. And then outside of your professional role, just being you know, as a member of society, helping us message about this stuff accurately because you're gonna have friends, you're gonna have family, you're gonna have training partners, people in the gym who wanna run, run stuff by you. Um, conveying these positive kind of optimistic messages about things is a much more helpful way than focusing excessively on diagnosis. So shifting the emphasis away from a tissue structure specific diagnosis from imaging and more towards prognosis is really what we tend to do. Prognosis more than diagnosis, particularly when the diagnosis does not matter that much insofar as it guides you to do something different, right? Yeah. We really just need a public health campaign. Yes. That's what you're saying. Okay, next question. Do the addictive properties of energy-dense, hyperpalatable foods affect appetite and satiety uh, imbalance? Does addiction to these types of foods play a role in overall increase in adiposity in the population? Uh, so I'll answer the second question first. In a subset of individuals with excess adiposity or individuals with obesity, yes, there are addictive uh, behaviors engaged uh, that are uh, part and parcel with their food-related behaviors, whether that's food-seeking and the type of foods that they buy, and some of them certainly are hyper-palatable, ultra-processed, energy-dense foods. Uh, food addiction is a small subset of obesity in general, and the contribution of food addiction or particular addiction to specific types of either macronutrients, whether it's carbohydrates, fat, or the blend between, or particular foods is a current uh, area of research that is pretty controversial. I will link in the description below on this video uh, and then tell you, the audience, that there is a great, uh, it's called the Great Debates in Nutrition, in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition on food addiction and like whether it's a thing or not and then how to think about this. And so the distillation from that and as far as I interpret it is that if we're Food addiction might be a thing, although regulated through different pathways than other addictions. Uh, and it is a small subset of, individ of, of individuals with obesity in general. And so, and I don't think that I would strictly limit that to energy dense, hyperpalatable, ultra processed foods, because there are other foods that people are addicted to that don't necessarily qualify for that in that small subset. Um, so yes, for a certain small group, I would yes, agree with that. Uh, but I don't think that energy-dense, hyper-palatable, ultra-processed foods are addicting broadly across the population. Rather, I think that they are not satiating. They don't instill this feeling of fullness. They're easily available uh, and that they're everywhere and that they're very, very cheap. And so because they have basically flooded the food environment, we cannot escape them. And until they're either less prevalent in our food environment or uh, giving people uh, much more healthier uh, much more healthy options for them to choose in our food environment, we won't be able to really do anything about this <laughs> obesity epidemic. 
I mean, we've been saying this every every uh, uh, seminar, seminar podcast, podcast and Q&A. If, you, if you don't change the food environment for everybody, like we are not going to fix this problem. And so, I mean, I don't I don't know what's being done on the food environment level. Other, I mean, yeah. there's been sugar taxes, there's been soda taxes, and some evidence of efficacy or both of those things. But like, the food environment must change. Otherwise, if you don't change the food environment. Our only hope to put a substantial dent in the problem is with these highly potent medication treatments that we have available. Yep. Unfortunately, a substantial portion of the population collectively is opposed to both of those things. Yes. They want neither food environment changes, because that involves big government and things like that, nor do they want Politics. medications because that's a crutch and you should just try harder because it's a, you know, Puritanical society. You got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. <laughs> there you go. And then just slog through it. Because so, I walked up. Good luck like, to everybody out there. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, good luck. Very optimistic message here at the Barbell Medicine <laughs> Seminar. Really want to leave you guys on a high note. All right. <laughs>